Hello, this is Elliot from the Ask L podcast. I'm the founder of the Revised Size Clinic, where we've helped over 6,700 people become pain-free, mentally well, and physically fit. Now, today, we're going to take a technical slant on, uh, on a podcast, which I'm really excited to do so with Dan Miller, who is a, a qualified osteopath, a clinical tutor, and a trainee in health psychology. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm good, thanks, Elliot. Thanks for inviting me, mate. It's really good to be here. Interesting to see where the conversation goes. It's great doing these things. I'm sure, I'm sure it will flow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah no, I'm good. I've got a, a few questions for you then. And I think the reason why it's so exciting for me to speak to you is that you've seen things from both sides of the, of the coin, I suppose. Because for me, when I was studying osteopathy, I noticed that it had a, a very, very anatomical slant arguably a quite reductionist slant I don't think as much attention was placed on the psycho or the social as should have been and you've gone to the other end of I mean you've taken your study so much further by now partaking is are you in the doctorate phase of your yeah yeah so obviously I suppose I'll give you a little bit of context so like you were saying Elliot you know it was like in the early stages you know I thought you know, if we can understand structure, if we can understand biology, if we can understand anatomy, then we can help people. We can apply manual therapy skills and we can help people. And um, I loved that. I loved that interaction we had with pe- with people. I was a big, big fan of Andrew Taylor still. I read a lot of his stuff and was amazed really by what, you know, what he'd achieved by his knowledge of anatomy and physiology. But I was always a bit stumped in like manual therapy technique classes. I was a bit like, you know, my power, power, I didn't feel confident in palpation couldn't really understand really what was happening the mechanisms it didn't quite make sense to me but anyway I went along with it because that's what we do when we're osteopathic students and and you know got a lot from clinic I found it struggling like challenging as we all did but they qualified in 2014 and then went into obviously private practice and quite quickly really questioned my role as a kind of osteopath I really went through this kind of phase like I don't know what I'm doing I don't know what I don't know how to apply it I don't feel it I don't feel I'm being as um like as positive or getting the outcomes I could hope for and um but then one patient just completely threw me you know like completely threw me he presented with his wife his wife took the case history for him you know really felt sorry for this guy looking back on it he wasn't the healthiest of people but they both wanted to change they both wanted some kind of motive they had a motivation to change but I don't think they had the resources to do it. And I definitely didn't have the resources. You know, I felt totally kind of underprepared in that area. But anyway, I felt I could hopefully suggest some ideas around diets and books to read, some ideas about some basic kind of movement, you know, as much as I could have with felt that I could give. And then I'd come back the week after and I was like, oh, how did you get on with some of that stuff? I was like, oh, I don't want to do it. I was like, but how, how could you go from that drive, that real big motivation to want to change the next week going, no, no, just don't bothered. I couldn't work that out. But anyway, cut a long story short, Elliot. The guy went on holiday for two weeks and was like, you know what, Dan? It's the best I've felt for two weeks. It's the best I've felt for like a few years. I went swimming. I was active. I was like, I was like, fantastic. Let's get you, let's get you swimming again. Let's get something, you know, really try and play on, you know, what he wanted to do. I was like, no, I don't want to do it. I was like, how, how does that work? What's going on here? You know, it's like, and he was like, Dan, I want you to fix me. I want, I want to be fixed. And I, you know, I had that kind of conversation with him. I said, look, okay, that's great, but it's, it's a two way street. 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to hope you're going to do some stuff and hopefully we'll kind of meet in the middle. And unfortunately I didn't get to see him again, but it really questioned my role as an osteopath, Elliot. Like I was like, hang on a minute. There's something seriously wrong. I'm seriously like kind of unprepared for this stuff. So then started looking at psychology because for me, it was like, it all starts with thinking. That's fundamentally, it was all starts with thinking. I was like, I can help someone physically, hopefully, you know, short term, which was proven in this case. But mentally, I just thought I can't even, I don't even know where to go with it. So then we then went and looked at psychology, did a conversion degree in psychology, conversion masters in psychology. Then I did a health psychology masters. And fast forward to now, Elliot, I'm on the uh, doctorate in health psychology part time at University of Western England. Amazing. And when are you graduating? Yeah. Well, funny enough, we had a little meeting with um, a small group of us early. Had a little meeting. We're like, we reckon it's going to be 2022, nice. but it's like it depends on when the like the kind of our research project gets. Like you know, we have our Viva and see when it gets. You know, if there's any amendments to make, but hopefully 2022, all going well. And one question before we get on to the to the bulk questions of the podcast. It sounds like when you partook, when you first partook in the study of psychology, that you were searching for something mm. and you were searching for an answer. Did you find it? No. Ah, interesting. <laughs> I would love, I would, honestly, so I would love interested. to say, right, I'd love to say, Elliot, right, you know what? Today I'm going to tell you how to manage this. I'm going to tell you how to manage that. I think this works really well. If anything, all that's come from it is more questions. Amazing. More Amazing. questions. It is not, don't get me wrong. It's guided me down a really handy path. Mm. Like it's pointed me in the direction of some like theories that really kind of like chime into my deep beliefs that I've kind of recognized. But I'd love to say, I'd love to say to you now, Elliot, you know what, right? If we were working with someone low back pain, they're slightly fear avoidant. Let's do this, this and this. And they're going to walk pain free. But unfortunately, it's not the case. Do you know what I find so enlightening about that is the image that comes to my mind or the question that comes to my mind is would you rather be a fish in a small pond believing it's the ocean or would you rather mm. be that fish in the ocean knowing that your task is now to explore that ocean and it sounds like you found the ocean <laughs> <laughs> and you've had the humility and you've had the humility to to actually look for it in the first place which I think a lot of people aren't I think a lot of practitioners have so much, uh, for the lack of a better term, possibly cognitive dissonance, stubbornness, lack of critique, self-critique, that they would rather think that they've got all the tools in their selective, in their selective amount, rather than actually venture out and be curious to find what else there yeah. is beyond. And it, it does get uncomfortable. You know, it's like when I went into osteopathy, I thought, this is it. I'm going to cure every single patient I see. They're going to walk out on, on a pink cloud. And I was like, oh, no, that doesn't seem to work that well. And then it was like, well, maybe psychology is the answer. I understand beliefs. I understand thinking. And, you know, the rabbit holes you can go. Don't get me wrong. They're all good rabbit holes. And I love reading about it. But you know what it's like, Elliot, when you're working with someone, it's like working with people is so, it's so invariable. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's so dependent on, and what I came to understand was, you know, that, that in between those four walls of a clinic room, I don't know what happens, but something happens. There's a positive effect, hopefully. I can't tell whether that's the way I've been, the way I am as a person, 
my manual therapy skills, hopefully some kind of empowerment. But then that's only me. I'm not taking into consideration the other person of like how they are that day, their experiences, their beliefs, their kind of motivations. And somehow in the middle, that, that kind of mixes up and something happens. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and it's like I used to take a lot of responsibility. I was like, oh, you know, they're not getting better because it's more my poor manual therapy skills. It's like, no, they, you know, they could get better regardless of my manual therapy skills, regardless of where I think they're good or bad. It's, it's far bigger for me. It's just so, there's just so much at play there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's one thing which, because I've, I've read more books on psychology than anything else since graduating, because I think that the depths of the mind is just endless and yeah. the interacting factors and how multifaceted it is. And even, you know, now when we come to, I mean, we'll talk about this in a second, but when it comes to the, the biggest predisposing factors for pain, for, for me, you know, the way that I interpret it is when the patient has lost control and when the patient is in a state where there's no hope and when all of these things are combined, whether it is depression, sleep deprivation, anxiety, poor diet, all these things which are starting to stress and take up that patient's ability to adapt um, combined with the psychological factors of, you know, poor coping mechanisms, no hope, financial distress, all these things, they all bump up the likelihood of that patient experiencing chronic pain. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. It's, and somehow, somehow when we're working with people, we've got to come to some kind of agreement, whether it's some kind of agreement subconsciously or, you know, that kind of thing, right? Okay, there's, there's a few steps here we need to take. It's not going to, it's not going to be, you know, I used to think it's three sessions, everything will be fine. But it's not, you know, like you're saying, in, in that, that, subgroup of patients that have that those kind of contributing factors it's so difficult because not only that we know we might notice that but then do they have the desire to tackle it and that's that's a really tough reflection because it's like you know do because i think we can force ourselves that's the wrong word we can apply ourselves to people and say look this is going to help this is going to this is what the evidence says blah 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 but if they're not in the right place or the right place to accept that help or even accept the advice, then that's, that's no one's fault. You know, that's, and I used to take that quite personally, but that's no one's fault. That's just the way they are at that moment in time. But I think the beautiful thing is that Elliot is that they know that there's a place they can go to if they're ready. Absolutely. And then we can help with like you were saying, which is like amazing what you do with all the strength training and all the exercise work and all that They're They're in that place. You know what? I want to try this bit. I want to try here. And it's like, yeah, we're ready. This, this, Let's give it a go and see how you feel. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, it's that, that's what I found quite interesting. It's that, how can we develop that desire? Oh, that's in cool. our that's, patients. Yeah, I've, that, to be honest, that, that question seems so difficult to answer that I don't think I would have ever yeah. even asked that question because mm. that is a seriously, that's a seriously, seriously difficult to, because I, I, I suppose it, you know, going into even deeper psychologies is the, the question of where does desire even come from? What are the thoughts yeah. or the emotions that are the foundations for desire? Because I don't think even even that is a tremendously difficult question to to ask. Yeah. I think you know, does it start in childhood? Can, does it start in is it yeah. nature? Is I it think it? you can tap into it. I think so we can so tap into. Can, it. I think, yeah, I think we can tap into that by asking certain questions. Mm. You know, like you know, if, if if we experience it, if we're going through that experience of managing someone who's in 
you know, going through persistent pain or just, you know what it's like with those people that are like, you know what, I'm struggling at the moment. I don't know what to do. It's like, you know, working with those people and saying, okay, what, what, were you, what did you used to do that, you know, you used to get a lot of fun from or a lot of like, what did you used to get up in the morning for? What did you, what was it? And that doesn't have to, I think I used to focus on purely exercise. Mm. I think it just has to be some kind of enjoyable activity. Absolutely. And I think if you can, if we can find that, again, it's like, I think the whole experience changes mm -hmm. because then they're like, you know what? I used to really enjoy doing this. Okay. Well, what, then let's have a look at the barriers that are stopping you from doing that. Just adding on to that, just, I suppose, um, giving testimony to that. I remember coming across a piece of research in fact, Danny Orchard also, we, we, me and Danny Orchard were talking about the same piece of research, which showed that you did not have to make a macro structure change in rehab to get the pain reduction. It's just the yeah. perception, just the perception of improvement is enough to actually reduce the pain. Yeah. And in fact, that's what happens the majority of the time that you don't say, so I think the experiment was on grade two rotator cuff tears, that no, there was oh, no, okay. mac, there was no macro structure change. It was just as torn as it was before, but the pain is less. Yeah. What's all that about? And is that, is that the fact that they've done something that they didn't, that they didn't think was possible and you've just supported them through that change? Well, I, I a lot of the time, the, the conversation that I have with my patients is I, I, I take them from a conversation which is based on the structural, the anatomical, which is what they think they're coming in with. And we talk about perception. And um, for example, you know, this disc herniation or this muscle tear, which the ultrasound found has been there probably for a long time, but your body, your brain's only been aware of it or aware of some type of injury for a certain amount of time. So we can just change the perception, try and change the perception back to what it was, but we need evidence to give you yeah. that perceptive change. So the more evidence we can give you that you're actually doing good and that you're strong, the more likely you are to recover. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think that's, that, that's fundamental, I think. But it, again, it's like, you know, and that, it's just, is the patient ready to hear that? Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's because it's like, what was it I was reading the other day? I can't remember, it was something along those lines. I think it might have been, I think it was like a shoulder case history or something like that. that they'd done this case report and the patient had, you know, like sort of had, I don't want to say failed at physiotherapy, but didn't get the results that they wanted. Say like 12 weeks worth of physiotherapy, rotator cuff tear, you know, you know like shouldn't, you know, limited flexion, limited adduction fitted that rotator kind of rotator cuff this like diagnosis and then they were like okay surgery is probably the next best option what I had happened on he'd actually gone home he'd put his hat he put his arm in his jacket felt a click felt a pop completely pain-free but there'd been no change on the scan and they're like what what's this about <laughs> it shouldn't be this should, you know full range everything still the same kind of changes in the shoulder but he's able to he's he's felt yeah. something yeah and he's amazing because <laughs> I, I often i have patients and they, they'll bend forward and they'll click their back and they're in pain or they'll move their shoulder and they click their shoulder and they're in pain and i'll often ask what came first the pain or the click and so yeah. often it's the click that comes before the pain rather than them being instantaneous almost like there is a a, a belief which is attached to the click which yeah. leads to the increase in pain or reduce, which I suppose yeah. is testimony to what we do as osteopaths anyway, when it comes yeah. to the manipulation and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One question I have, well, the first question, Go is on. how do you feel 
you know, going through your journey, how do you feel that osteopaths need to integrate their understanding or better understanding of the psychosocial into osteopathy? Well, that's a good question, Elliot. Like, how do we feel that we can implement it more? I think it's, you know, you know, if we look at the way the biopsychosocial model's coming through, you know, as allied health professionals, this is one of the models that we should be using. But it's a real challenge, you know, and I can only I'll count like my experience. It's like I'd like to see myself as slightly more psychosocial than than some of my colleagues, just because of the way I've gone with my studies. But I still diagnose with a biological diagnosis and don't ignore the psychosocial. So maybe that's through training. But how can we implement it more? I think sometimes and Peter O'Sullivan said this. I think if someone's presenting maybe with, you know, some, what we may like illness, like some illness beliefs or um, changing the society, changing like kind of relationships or something like that. I think sometimes we tend to, I'm not, this is, this was, I'm take from my experience. No, I'm not like generalizing. I used to think that I haven't got the experience in that area to manage that. I don't know what to do. I'm comfortable in the biology area. I'm comfortable with anatomy. I'm comfortable with physiology. If someone presents to me with some kind of illness, please, I don't know how to do it. And I'd, I'd shut off from it. And it's funny because then Peter O'Sullivan says, well, no, you don't have to do that. Because if a friend comes to you and says, you know what, Dan or Elliot, I'm struggling at the moment, mate. You know, lockdown's got me bad. I haven't seen my mates for ages. I've now started getting this like lower back pain that just doesn't seem to shift. And everything, that you know, my relationships, you know, having a bit of trouble with my girlfriend, all that sort of stuff works, let me down a bit. And it's like, if that was, if yeah, you were talking to him or her as a mate, you're not going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, this is out of my comfort zone now. You're going to ask them how they are. That's just, that's just human nature. You're going to say, well, sorry to hear that. Hey, you know, how are you managing it? How are you getting on? Are you, you know, do you feel supported? You know, you're going to listen to them. And the power in that, Elliot, and I think we can apply that with our, with our patients without, and of course we have to be aware of our boundaries. We have to, OPS says that, you know, we have the osteopathic practice standards say, we have to be aware of our boundaries. And if someone is presenting with, you know, psychosocial uh, complexities, like mental health that we, you know, like for example, they, you know, there's like been some history of self-harm, there's been a history of substance abuse, there's been suicidal thoughts, then we have to be ready to say, okay, right, this is now further, this uh, a psychological referral is going to help you Matt not I can help you with your pain presentation but I think a psychological referral is probably going to be better for you here you know it's that it's just reckon you know clinically recognizing you know like we would do with um you know red flags or something like that you know if a patient presents to you with a complication and you feel actually this is probably going to need further investigation you'd quite happily refer but you think the psychosocial explore those you're saying explore yeah explore that space where to take it up to where the stand to to take it up to your competence and then explore that space okay yeah and i think and i think as well it's like you know there's courses in motivational interviewing there's courses in cbt and all that which is fantastic but it's quite structured i think it's like a humanistic approach of just listening to the narrative it is so powerful that we don't we don't have to be psychologists we don't have to be you know, CBT therapist, just the fact that we're osteopaths and we're in a place, space to listen is, has its own powerful effect because the patients feels validated. 
they feel listened to you know and and we can use we can use that within our manual therapy when, when we're doing manual therapy you know oh you mentioned you're having trouble in your relationships you know do you want to explore it and you can kind of judge it can't you Elliot? you know when someone wants to open up a little bit and you know when you know you know when the right time is to maybe not not like dive in with a question but just say how are you finding that and and it's just that I think it's that, some questions like that are so powerful, and it, it, it's qualified. The qualitative literature backs that up. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that open-ended, open-ended discussion, or yeah. um, I've heard it called uh, is it cathartic, cathartic conversation? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or Peter O'Sullivan and the cognitive functional guys call it like listening to like they just basically tell me your story, mm-hmm. and then leave it at that. And then they're saying that you know what they say is that you know that's really going to get to the root because then it's just purely guided by the patient narrative mm-hmm. what's the and power in it being guided by the patient narrative i think it because we're not we're letting the patient lead the experience and why is that so in- where yeah go on i think it because it puts them in, in effect it puts them you know they're they're the expert in their condition they're the expert in their life it gives them the, the time to get to tell you their story so if that, I think that becomes powerful because if they've had an experience of other healthcare professionals that maybe haven't, they've maybe had short, you know, like this is no, I think what GPs do and other healthcare practitioners do are brilliant. But if they haven't got the time, which is through no fault of their own, of course, they're going to say, where's your pain? How's it affecting your life? Are, are, you know, are you getting severe neurological symptoms? And that sort of stuff. Then, you know, maybe it can feel that they're not getting an experience for what they deserve. But what the qualitative literature says is that like the healing, they call it the healing journey because it's not a kind of, it's not like, oh, I feel great now. You know, it's like the practitioners that have been working with have been, let them have that supportive environment. They've been able to speak non-judgmentally. And I think there's so much power in that stuff. It's, it's so interesting with, I think, I think and it's, it's probably just partly down to my own personal interest, but when it comes to reading about psychology, I've really enjoyed reading about the psychoanalytical stuff and learning about the, um, the hero's journey. And there's so much of what you've already mentioned, which show correlations between the hero's journey and say the healing journey, i.e. the hero meets a call or they, they, they have a mission and they have to go into the chaos of that, that, that mission to then triumph over it. And it and it's very important that the hero is the hero. You can't ask the surgeon or the doctor or the, mm. the osteopath to be the hero. You have to be the hero. But the hero, amongst you know the many myths that we have as human human beings, the, the hero can have a guide. It can have someone who yeah. shows them the way, but doesn't necessarily lead them the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that supportive, it's offering that supportive role, isn't it? You know, because we're not, you know, there's an argument then, isn't there, Elliot, then to say, well, as osteopaths or healthcare professionals, do we have to adopt some kind of coaching role? Mm. You know, there's a question there, isn't there? Like, and then in that, then that changes, that may change our approach. I, I have to be honest, that that's all I view myself as, is yeah. as, as a coach or a guide. I am, I, uh, there is, there is no way that I get my patients pain free. All I do is show them the way to become yeah. pain-free. And when it comes to what I do with my hands, you know, even if I was to take a very uh, focused look at it, I'm really just 
I'm really just unlocking or, or showing their body or their mind what was already there in the first place. There's the, my, my, what I do with my hands does nothing to their body apart from mm. showing what was already there in the first place that so you can actually move yeah. this far or it's not as the tissue mm. isn't as tough as you think all the, all these kind of things. So yeah, I, I, I completely, completely agree with that. I, and I, I have to be honest that my work as an osteopath becomes so much more interesting, so much more interesting when I viewed myself as a guide rather than as the practitioner who solves people's problems. Yeah. And I think that makes it, I think that makes it more rewarding Big because time. it's, it's so humbling. Cause I remember, I'd never forget, you know, it was, it was a manners talk, right. At the use uh, or BSO as it was then. And I think her name was Susan Turner was doing a, a session on balanced ligamentous tension. Do you know what she opened up with? She said, no one is smarter than the human body. I was like, well, and I, you know, that um, to me, that was it. That was it. You know, it's like, it took, well, it wasn't there. And then it took me a time to understand it. But now I know what she means. I'm not, I am no better than the person sitting in front of me. It's, it, you know, it's Cole Young and well, maybe Freud a little bit different, but Cole Young was, was like spoke about the power differences within a treatment environment. And he's like, he puts himself on exactly the same plane or, or if not below the person he's working with. They are the expert in their condition, not me. And it's like, so if the patient says, ah, oh, Dan, you know, I don't know what you did last time, but I come out of that session feeling a million times better. I was like, no, no, no. It's nice of you to say that. Of course it is. But you fixed yourself. You know, I've just supported you, like you saying, you know, just helped you in that environment. I haven't fixed you. You've done that yourself. And I think that was that was quite humbling for me to realise that, that I don't fix anyone. I'd like to think I do. You know, the old ego me when I come out of uni was like, yeah, I'm going to fix everyone. But you know, it doesn't happen like that, does it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It don't happen like that. But... I've got another question. How and why can uh how how and why my question is how and why can psychology be a larger predisposition to pain than the bio and the anatomical mm, yeah good question again i suppose you know from what we understand about the biopsychosocial model the critique of it is that how uh, is everyone equal do you then silo people off into the bio the psycho or the social but how does it impact on pain? I think when you look at, there was a really good paper by, uh, I think the author was Nicholas Penny in 2010, spoke about how the concepts of osteopathy fit alongside uh, the biopsychosocial model. And of course, so the biology is a tissue causing symptom, you know, neuro, you know, all that neurology stuff, all the bio, the anatomy and all that sort of stuff. But then you have like, which is obviously related to structures related to function. And then you have the social and the psycho, uh, psycho social and the psychology side of it. And the psychology bit, it talks about illness beliefs, which, you know, goes back to what I thought where it all starts with thinking. And, and then the social side of it, you've got obviously the sick role. And, and then alongside that, the osteopathic parts of it are the body has its own medicine chest, if you want to call it that. It's self-regulating, it's self-healing, it's self, you know, and all that stuff and how they all combine but when you just look at it as a framework i think then you can kind of understand that you know and this is kind of a 
touching a little bit on the psychology side of the common sense model, which is all about illness beliefs. If that person who's presenting to you or us has a history of long-term pain, has a history of trauma, has a history of mental health, you know, sort of depression and anxiety. And then of course they're presented with this pain problem. They come and see us, Elliot. Of course, there's going to be some psychosocial elements there that are affecting the biology. And if you look at the pain science stuff, which I'm, you know, kind of get a bit wobbly in the, you know, that's, you know, I think it was, um, what's his name? Laura Mosley talks about it, that, that that impact, they might have an impact on inflammation, might have an impact on pain sensitivity or nociception sensitivity, if you want to call it that. But fundamentally for me, it's that if that person then believes, if you look at the common sense model, the pain event is the health threat. The illness domain or the illness threat is, hang on a minute, I'm not sure, a timeline, I don't know how long this is going to take. Control or cure, I don't think I can control this. I'm, this is out of my control. Consequences, this is robbing me of my life. And then the, the coping behaviour with that is avoid. Or, you know, I'm going to withdraw from quality of life or something like that. And then the individual appraises that. So then we're kind of stuck in this like this cycle of okay, and then you've got emotion in that as well. So you might have fear, you might have you know anger and all, all those other things, and their emotional mechanism might be uh, you know what I don't want to do that activity because I think my back's going to go. So of course they, they, this withdrawal from society or this withdrawal from quality of life is going to have an inherent effect on the biology because you know all of a sudden our world gets smaller. You know, we're not moving our body as much as we feel that we could. But then on the other side of that, you know, the patient could have these illness beliefs. They could come and see you and you could go, you know what? Let's just get you doing a few movements. Actually, you know what? You're actually moving really well. You can do a lot more than you think you can. You know, it's that kind of you feed in and maybe a little bit of graded exposure. Sure, you know. just, by, just by you explaining that so so well and so fluently going into the the psychology and then back into the biology and then the social it made me understand the flaws in my own questioning in a sense that i realize and obviously you know tell me what what you think but the the human body and the human mind have evolved as one without any segregation between any different systems so even the way in me asking what has more of an influence the psychology or the biology is not being actually true to to the human form. And I was going to ask you, do you think that we impose our own belief systems on something which is far older and far more complex than, uh, than, than our framework for understanding it? Yeah, I think, you know, it's part of the, some of the critique of osteopathy, isn't it? Are we still stuck in this biomedi biomedical tissue-causing symptom kind of paradigm that then you look at, you know, you look at the person and then you look at the work that Ollie Thompson's been doing with Cause Health and with uh, Peter Stilwell and I can't remember the other, Stilwell and Harmon, I think, about the role of environment. So now it's like that person's, they're not separate from their environment. You can look, you, it, it, you, can't, you can't work. And, you know, the, the paper, the inactivism beyond the biopsychosocial model paper, the authors say that there was a study done where they had two people on on the top of a hill and one person was on a healthy like healthy individuals one was on a skateboard the other was just i think was just standing on a box or standing on the hill 
the person on the skateboard saw that hill was steeper. Now, if we apply that to someone in pain, we could be in exactly the same environment. I don't know, say for example, they've gone, they've gone to try a gym or something like that. They're in an environment, but they don't feel safe. They don't feel comfortable. They don't feel, you know, they don't, they don't feel that they should be there. The trainer is, you know, is a really fit, healthy person and they don't see themselves identifying as that. So before you know it, the environment for one person is an amazing place to be. For someone else, it's the opposite. That's unreal. You know, and that's so if we take that as in the environment as someone who's in pain, rightly so, there's good, you know, if we're, if, if, you know, we've all experienced some kind of pain event, all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, hang on, how many stairs can I get up? I don't think I'm going to be able to run for that bus. Mm. And that's as a healthy individual going for a short-term pain event. Yeah. What about someone who's had long-term pain with all that other psychosocial impact that we've, we've, that we've discussed? That's unbelievable. I mean, because to, to, to view that experiment being so simple, but that obviously, because we, we are integrate, we are interacting with the patient's perception. It's not an objective event that we're dealing with. We're dealing with a perception, a very subjective event. So then it automatically makes me put my mind in that in that patient or for me to take the same lens that the patient's using and use it through my eyes and realizing that well that that thing which looks light actually now weighs a ton that yeah. stairs is now going up three times as long as it is that um that the even you know the turning a normal wet slippery path into an ice rink that's the kind of changes that can yeah. happen in our patient's minds dependent on the situation that they're in yeah, like I was, I was like another like area that I'm really interested in is pain behaviour, like applied from the biopsychosocial perspective. So there was a paper that I was reading about, I think it was about around elderly people with a long-term back pain and the thinking process that go on beyond that, Elliot. They just like, I'm like, you know, it's like we all know obviously that the impact of social groups can have on the elderly, you know, or writing groups or something like that. The power in that is just, uh, you know, it has everything. Social, you know, your psychosocial impact, your relationship, you're related to others, you're doing something you enjoy, all of the above, right? This, one of the sayings in, or one of the quotes from the, from the research paper was that I didn't want to go to my writing group now because I wasn't sure, I wasn't, I didn't know how long I was going to be sitting down for, or I can't bear to sit down. And so if we don't explore that, and another one was, I don't go to social events anymore because I don't know how many stairs are going to be there. And it's like, if, if I think if we don't understand, you know, I'm sure people do, you know, it, it's probably my, my own reflection. I never used to even think twice about that stuff, Elliot. Like, I just, why would I? I just want to know if someone can bend forward or not. But not the impact that that's having on the individual. It, it brings up to me... Um the i don't know if it's a principle of osteopathy what andrew taylor still said which is go towards health anyone can mm. find a disease go towards health yeah. and then i suppose even for our patients understanding as thoroughly as we can what is health to them what does health yeah. mean to you because yeah you know it, health to me is completely different to someone else i might view health as being able to lift weights or do martial arts for them they might just want to go on a long walk with their grandkids or something yeah. like that it's completely different yeah. This definition yeah. of and I think and I think when we start understanding things like that I think the whole treatment encounter becomes so rewarding because 
again, it's like what you were saying, you were seeing yourself as that guide. If you can understand that, something that seems so simple to us is actually huge to the patient. Like the empathy, the rapport, the belief in you as an individual all have positive effects on out- outcomes. Of course they're going to, you know, you've, you've touched someone's deep nature of like intrinsic motivation, desire. I just want to pick up my grandkids. And that's it. And if we can work towards that, I think, and as well, it's like I was, I will come on to, I think you mentioned we're going to talk about it later, but my research, I'm hoping to get, you know, it's called, you know, I'm hoping to do some stuff with living well with pain. Look at the behaviours that people adopt, you know, for living well after seeking osteopathic care to try and really like, you know, talk, make the research a bit novel. But I was talking to, um, hopefully she's going to really help me with the research. And it was like, you know, the kind of her pain experience, I just can't relate to. I, 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 you know, which is why it's so good, like having her on board, because some of the questions that I might ask her, I'm coming as a researcher. If I'm like, oh, how does pain affect your life? It's like, Dan, that is, is such a broad question. I can't even begin to go where, where, even think about what you're asking me. You need to break that down a bit. You know, so it's like having having that person's individual account you know i think it's like that it's like it's a humbling experience where we fit ourselves to the patient they don't fit themselves to us Mm -hmm. we fit ourselves to the patient and we apply our knowledge our experience creatively to helping that person achieve however small that may be could could we go on to talk about your research now then yeah of course mate of course yeah yeah so so yeah so part of the doctorate is that um you know, I've got to do doctoral level research and health psychology is, and I'm a big, I'm a, as you know, I spoke about some of the qualitative literature, I'm really, really interested in the patient experience. I think, you know, what we've been talking about, Elliot, we can learn so much from an individual experience, far more than maybe we can about, I don't know, the effect of METs on improving hip range of motion, something like that, or HVTs improving whatever neurological, but I don't know, mate. But, if we can understand the illness experience, I think it really helps us empath- like develop our empathy, develop our compassion and help apply ourselves creatively. I think if we can understand that. So what I'm really interested in is, I think, because obviously we all, all we see is people in pain. That's all, you know, that's all I ever see is people in pain. And But what about those people that aren't, that may be in pain, that adopt some kind of behaviour that we don't see? And how have they developed that knowledge? So that's what I want to, I want to tap into that part. You know, it's like, so living well, you know, I was kind of trying to tie in with some kind of intrinsic motivation and use a theory called self-determination theory to ground it in that. But I've, 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 you know, talking with my research supervisors, I want to kind of drop that because I want to let the research go, literally take its own course. But the reason is it's like, it's called um, uh, public, it's not called, it's something like, it's probably something as simple as like public involvement. Like we want to get our public involved in the research because they're the people that I want to help. If I haven't got those people involved, it's kind of, there's still that disconnect. And it's kind of the big critique, you know, like academia, like saying, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. The evidence says this, you should do that. So, and there are people who it's meant to help are going, I have no relationship to that whatsoever. It doesn't even begin to touch the sides. Yet when we get people having that experience, being grounded in like the kind of question forming data collection theory like 
theme generation as well. Like I could come up with some themes and apply it to, to the, the person in pain and go, what do you think? She, again, she, she might say, it means nothing to me. <laughs> it means nothing. You've completely missed a whole host of my environment. You don't know what it's like to have to think about going out. Something you take for granted. What it sounds like you're doing then is is flipping the, I suppose, not is I I can imagine it being very normal for psychology. But if we go to more reductionist or allopathic roles when it comes to management of pain, most Mm. of them funnel down very specifically into the patient, i.e., MET, HVT, analgesics. What's the effect? But you're doing the opposite. You're starting with the patient and you're funneling out and, and trying to get as much information about that patient yeah. as possible. And the patient has all the answers. Yes, that's what I'm picking up on, which is so interesting, is that if you can, if you can get what seems so small at first in terms of just a patient walking through the door and get them to open up and, and understand yeah. their experiences and their story in as much detail as possible, then that gives you the framework of understanding or at least the the playing field to to come up with a with a with a plan together. Is that is yeah. that right? Yeah, it's Amazing. like it's just put it's putting the this putting the participant at the center of the research. Yes. Rather than the other way around. Amazing. I'm not saying that participants, you know, that's you know that's I don't want to do research justice because it's really challenging, but you know, it's like I want to understand what it means to live well to someone who's got long-term pain condition. What does that mean? And it's like what you were saying earlier. It's like, it could mean something so simple that we don't have to like get a patient bench pressing cattle or squatting cattle. We just have to get them doing something they enjoy. If they're moving and they're enjoying it, it has, you know, it has an impact on quality of life. It has a real an impact on relationships. It had an impact on the belief in themselves. Do you think that sometimes we're having to really catch up with how times have changed? Because obviously, you know, early 1940s, say, just previous to where the, when the NHS was formed, leading causes of death were were things that occurred, high-risk things that occurred in the day-to-day environment for many patients. For example, poisoning, bacterial yeah. infections, uh, workplace accidents. Whereas now, our idea of health is not steering away from harm's way but it's living in the normal yet quite chaotic environment of the day-to-day situation, navigating that as best as possible. So do you sometimes feel that we're catching up with that? Sometimes I think, I think it's just, it's just, it's just, anyway, you think we've had this event of a pandemic and now we're coming out of it again, hopefully, hopefully, you know, it's affected people in so many different ways. You know, you can hear that the individual stories, people have either really suffered or actually, they've been quite quiet, but they've actually really enjoyed the experience. You know, it's like, so maybe health is going to change again. You know, there's a big, obviously a big focus on mental health, rightly so. But what does mental health mean? What does that mean? You know, it's like, okay, does that mean I'm, I'm going to have no depressive thoughts? I'm going to be zero anxiety and I'm going to be pain free for the rest of my life. It's like a utopia, isn't it? It's like, it's like you say life has its own it's, life's going to still happen we're still going to unfortunately experience unpleasant events mm-hmm. we're still going to experience anxiety i'm still going to you know going to feel fearful about going into work some days i'm going to be you know stressed about a deadline or you know 
stressed that I'm not going to complete a module or comparing myself to others. That's just normal day to day for me. Mm-hmm. But ha- at what point do I say, you know what, I feel great today? And does that is that then equate to health? Mm-hmm. I don't you know. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you know, for me, health is just that waking up in the morning, you go and I feel all right today. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's yeah, I think that's enough. If I can get up and go for work and have a good old day, then you know, have a laugh with my kids, have a laugh with my wife. But again, that might be minute by minute. Mm-hmm. That might happen one minute and the next minute I'm going, I just want to run. Yeah. I just want to run. But at what point, you know, uh, where do we class that as health? Mm. And I suppose they're questions that need to be answered. In fact, in fact, um, I've just finished reading Mark Carney's book um, called Values. The, Mark, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he, he's basically saying that, that there does need to be an objective underpinning for what health is or what happiness is. That's more from like an economical economical perspective um but yeah no it's i know this but then they're big questions big questions they're massive questions you know it's like you know obviously the world health organization tried to define health in the 1940s and they're like there i think it was something along the lines of the complete what was it not complete absence or the complete psychological physical and mental health or or something but the word complete was in it I'm like, does that mean that it's one or the other, that it's either complete or incomplete? What about, a, you know, what about the spectrum of it? Mm-hmm. You know, physically, I might feel great. You know, I might be able to go out for a run or do whatever I want to do physically. But mentally, I might be absolutely crapping myself about a job interview. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's this, and, you know, and, and, and the health psychologists have kind of had, like, tried to add in the word of perception mm-hmm. and the satisfaction you know, to try and tone that language down a bit. But yeah, that's academic. Term. Like you were saying, Elliot, my version of health could be very, very different to the person I see tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been so interesting for me to... to <laughs> Thanks, Elliot. With you. Yeah. Um, if, if, well, first of all, I wondered if you had a go-home message for any osteopaths or any healthcare practitioners listening to this. I think it's be open-minded and be creative with the way you work with people. You know, don't be afraid to try things and don't beat yourself up if it goes wrong. And if there's anyone who is listening or watching and wants to keep in touch with your work or keep up to date with your work, is there any way that they can do that? Yeah, you could. Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Dan Danny Miller, or uh, that's probably the easiest version, actually. Yeah. On Instagram. No problem. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been an absolute pleasure nah. speaking to you today. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Elliot, no, it's Elliot, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.